This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, a very special Sunday mailbag edition. I say our because it's me, Scott Phillips, from the Motley Fool, and him, Andrew Page from strawman.com. Mr. Page, happy Sunday morning. Happy Sunday morning. How are you going? I mate, very, very, very well. Right now, I am on the way to go on bushwalk mm. in a New South Wales national park that's only open about six weeks a year. So I'm going oh. to go and hopefully enjoy the sun. If it's sunny, if it's not, I'll be miserable and unhappy, but we'll see how we go. Other than that, mate, I'm very, very well. Thank you for Good asking. for you. Um, you actually reminded me, I, I read something during the week, a study published on how insanely good for you walking is. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's another reminder um, where I think we we tend to think that fitness is joining a gym and doing all this, you know, <laughs> I'm only going to eat uh-huh. chicken breast and rah, rah, rah. It's just like, like little things like that just compound up and I'm going to forget the bottom line, but it was something like, you know, if, even if you can sort of do six, 7,000 steps a day, they, the, between that and the control group that didn't, like you've got literally an extra 15 years of quality. Wow. Of quality life. It's like, it's massive. So That's enjoy crazy. your walk, mate. And, I will, and thank you. The other the other little thing that, that prompted me to remind me there is there's, there is a lot of added benefit of walking in nature. So if you're going to walk right. through the Sydney tunnel, probably not <laughs> as good. <laughs> For you, um, but but just being out in nature, it's, it's got yeah. it's got all of these sort of not just the health, the fitness benefits, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. psychological mm-hmm. benefits as well. So I guess you know I if, if uh, you're listening to this in bed on a Sunday morning, get out there and go for a walk. There you go. Put the uh, put the earphones in and uh, yeah, just listen while you listen while you wander through. Hopefully, what is a lovely part of your world. And we'll, we'll talk for ages too, so you have to, you have to do a proper walk. <laughs> yeah, no excuse for knocking your 10,000 steps up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, so 4K is an hour. If you listen to both of our podcast episodes this morning, you'll get 10,000 steps in. There you go. Walk to Uluru. Just, just start now. You'll get there. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, speaking of Uluru, just a random tangent. Uh, last week on Friday, you talked about the Lorax. There are some really cool trees. I think they're desert oaks, I think. Uh, out around Uluru that actually look like Lorax trees. We might oh, remarked cool. while we were walking. I, I thought of that after we finished talking earlier. Um, yes, they, they literally have this little Lorax and this little bushy kind of hangy trees. That, yeah, look, looks like you're in the Lorax. So um, no, no one's chopped them all down just a, yet. No, oh, not yet. No. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. Hey, um, let's uh, let's get into the mailbag and we're gonna mix it up a little bit. You've got a question this time. I do. This one was sent through from a straw man member, long time listener, and. Um, uh, we mixed up our schedule a little bit last week, so I do apologize, um, uh, Nicholas, for, for, for getting that. But he says, oh. while sorry, I have a, you- He's a straw man member, is he? Yes. Yep. Uh, what, Tun- what's tunnel? straw uh, I thought I got away with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> private online investment club. And Nicholas is a member, and Nicholas asks- and Nicholas asks, <laughs> you mentioned many times the advantages of time in the market and that, and that to be young is the best set of circumstances for long-term <laughs> investment growth. Well- mm-hmm. Not just for that, but yeah, it's also it's also great to be young. I think just period, right. full stop. Yes. Um, what would your general, of course, advice be for someone like me who didn't pay enough attention to this in their twenties and thirties, and who now <laughs> finds themselves with only ten to fifteen years left in the workforce slash accumulation phase? Assuming the general rule of doubling every seven to ten years, how else would you supercharge earnings without crazy risk? 
Generally speaking, risk tolerance is high for the moment given expected time remaining before the drawdown phase. But as one gets nearer to retirement, I'm sure the uh, ardour would cool somewhat. If everything goes okay in that period, I'm sure reasonable growth may be achieved. However, based on recent history, it would only take one or two black swans, such as a major recession in the US or China, for example, to put a quite a dent in the expectations of reasonable growth over that 10 to 15 year investment period. A bit of context here. Um, uh, It's probably a little bit personal. I'll skip over that. Well, let's go with that to start off with, mate. Um, I'll throw it to you. What do you think? All right. Uh, I'm I'm liking the change of of environment. Yeah, nice. Uh, Nicholas, really great question, mate. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. I'm going to start with my usual favorite, which is time frame and horizon. Uh, I don't know your circumstances. I don't want to know because I don't have to be personal advice. I'm not allowed to do that. Um, but if you think about your your life from here, let's say you've got 15 years to retirement. Let's say you're 15, you're planning to retire at 65 because I want to keep my maths pretty simple. By the time you've got to this age, mate, you're probably going to live to 90. Now, you may not. Um, plenty of people don't, unfortunately, for them. Uh, but you're probably going to. So your investment horizon isn't actually 15 years to retirement. That's part of it. But it's 40 years. It's 15 years of retirement and 25 years of retirement. And you've talked about the drawdown phase. So the first thing I would do is before you think you've missed out, and look, honestly, um, you know, we, I'd love to give you those years back because I, I can't. And that is for any young person listening, um, Nicholas, I'm going to use you as, a, as an example. <laughs> My apologies in advance. Don't be Nicholas um, in the sense that if you had the chance not to wait to that point, you know, we'll, we'll help Nicholas hopefully with some ideas, uh, but you can actually get a, a massive head start on future you, let alone Nicholas, by doing it now. So um, n- number one is, Nicholas, go back 25 years and start then. Uh, you obviously can't, but if you are listening to your 25, please, for the love of God, start now. Um, but with a 40-year time horizon-ish, Nicholas, and again, I'm no actuary or, or medical expert, uh, have a think about what that means. Because you say, well, you know, seven years to double, okay, I got 15 years. Actually, you're probably going to double six times if you didn't draw any money down between now and the end of the end of the time on this mortal coil. Now you are going to draw some down, but have a think about that and sort of reframe your investing time frame or horizon over that period of time. If you need to draw down from day one of retirement, then you have to draw down some and hopefully compound what's left. But again, unless you're drawing down as much as you're making, you're still going to be going forwards even at a slower rate. So don't. And the reason I say that is two things. One is I want to give you some confidence there is more time to go than you think. The other is, the other part of your question or the implied part, I think, is what else could I do? Don't please chase stupid returns because you think it's one of those I've got to, I've got to make up for lost time. Because you know what's worse than starting now? Is starting now, getting five, seven years into the, into the future and realizing you've done a terrible job of investing over that period of time because you chased unreasonable returns. I got to say, mate, if I was 25, 45 or 65, I would invest in exactly the same things because I don't, if, if I could get a bit of return now, I, I would, <laughs> you know, just because I'm taking more risk doesn't mean I'm going to get more return. There's a massive misnomer. Two things the, uh, the economists or the academics have, have misled, us, misled us on. First is the market is efficient, which is absolute tripe. The second is that risk equals reward or return. It doesn't. Um, you know, could you, could you get lucky, you know, if you buy a lot of ticket and you win, you took a stupid risk and you got lucky and you got a great return. Therefore, you should all buy a lot of tickets. No, clearly yeah. not. True, right? I just I just interject very quickly that I think they Please. they actually made a reasonable 
comment, but it's just been bastardized. Uh, yes, exactly. Years. That's right. So risk doesn't equal risk. So I think you're right. You're so right to point this out. People think, oh, if I want a good return, I have. I, I, yeah. uh, if I take a lot of risk, I will get a good return. Yeah. No, it means if you want really big returns, you must take big risk. You are never going to mm-hmm. build incredible wealth by leaving your money in a savings account. Like you just can't, right? Yes. Um, you could put it all on uh, you know, some hyper-speculative stock and, and you yep. could make money, but- you might not as well. Therefore, yes. risk doesn't equal return. Risk Correct. is kind of necessary <laughs> for return to some extent. That's a lovely way to put it, mate. So, um, so uh, Nicholas, I wouldn't do anything at all differently from a, from an investing perspective. I don't know. If I knew a better way to invest now, I would. I've got plenty of time to retirement. I'm, am I taking more risk than because I've got longer? No. Did I take more risk 20 years ago? Will I take less risk in 10 years time? No, I, I'm, I'm trying to maximize my returns over time, knowing that, as Andrew says, it's riskier to own shares and have cash in the bank in terms of the potential loss of capital. Absolutely true. But uh, I think I'm going to get a reasonable return. So that, that, is, that is true generically. But it's not also true that all I have to, you know, otherwise everyone to do it right. If, if, I, if, I, if I want 100% return, all I'm going to do is take more risk and I'll get the 100% return. I think if you think that through, I'm sure you know this, Nicholas. But uh, if you think that through, it's obviously not true, right? Uh, all I'm gonna do is all I'm gonna do is buy a, a speculative biotech and I'll make a squillion dollars because look how risky it is. It's clearly not the case. So don't. Uh, I can't give you advice personally, but anyone listening, don't try and chase returns or take more risk and think that somehow you're going to get it. Um, you're likely to lose money, and losing that losing that money means you're worse off than had you taken less risk, which is just that's where the misnomer comes in. I agree with all of that. I, just, I very quickly wanted to interject Please. on something else I, I, I failed to mention. When the academics say risk, they don't mean risk in what you or I or a normal person might consider risk. <laughs> what is actually risk, yeah. They, they, they redefine yeah. the term and bastardize it, yes. They, they, they mean risk because you, you need something that you can measure and model, right? And risk is a subjective, it doesn't fit into a spreadsheet. So right. what they mean is volatility. That's ridiculous. And, and, and um, yeah, so is our shares more volatile? Absolutely. And if you want to call volatility risk, and if you are a short-term speculator, absolutely that's risk. But there's a there's a lovely, I saw a really nice chart the other day. Mm. I think it was on Twitter or some excellent, you know, and some uh, recently, which basically said, had uh, time along the bottom axis and risk on the left-hand axis and risk in the, mm. in the real sense of the word. And cash was obviously the lowest risk on the left-hand side of the curve. And shares were the highest risk because that's where all the volatility is. But as they went forward, the risk of cash went much, much, much higher and the risk of shares went much, 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 much lower. In other words, if you left your money in, put all your money in cash over the next 40 years, that is the most probably insanely risky thing that you could possibly do because you are virtually guaranteeing yourself, even under relatively historical moderate rates of inflation, to just erode your purchasing power by very significant amounts. And therefore, you're taking extreme levels of risk. So risk is not only ill-defined, but it's also very much a a consequence of perspective as well. There's another nice little chart, which is very hard to do verbally, but I'll I'll give it a go, (laughs) which which talks about... um, It looks at every single one-year period, you know, since records began for the ASX, and you can do it for the US as well. And then it looks at every single two-year period and every single three-year period. And as you go along that that chart for for the ASX, once you get to five-year periods, the number of times that you're with dividends and everything factored in that you're in the red is like really rare. Minnesota, and in, yeah. in, on the Aussie con, I believe there's still a 
one or two examples in the US context, but in the Aussie context, at least, there is not a single 10-year period where you would have lost money. And that's every single 10-year period. So that means you invested at the start of 2007, and in mm-hmm. 2017, you're in, you, you have not lost money. Now, there'll be periods of better and worse return. That chart sort of describes that. Yep. But even under the, wor- the worst possible luck ever, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's, there's still a positive return. And in fact, when you look at it through the, that particular lens, the, the risk is, is materially, substantially eroded mm-hmm. just by extending your, your time horizon, like by a huge degree. So, and it, you know what, and, and the, the, the TLDR here is it just, it trends to the long-term return. So as you go out to, you know, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, it just, it just narrows down to that long-term compound return that, that you often point out with the um, Vanguard chart, which is, you know, near enough 10% per annum compound. Nice, mate. Uh, so Nicholas, a couple of things. Um, I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll finalize the last bit in a second. The next thing about the black swan thing, uh, I just want to kind of take that back to what Andrew just said, which is, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have those. Yeah. Now, what, what? I, so I've always said, don't have any money in the market you need in the next five years. That's my starting point, right? When, when investing, but it doesn't mean that if you have a need for some income at some point, you should take the whole lot out. It's the dollars you need, right? So, for example, if you end up being fortunate enough, or someone listening is fortunate enough to only live on on the dividends of their shares, for example, over that period of time, you don't need the capital at all. So if the share market falls 50%, it doesn't matter. Now, if the dividends fall, you need to be mindful of that. And so be mindful of how much cash you need just in case dividends get cut. But it's a very different story. Now, if you need to take all that money out at 65, then it's a very different story. Because at 65, you've got to say, well, I need I need those dollars because I need a thing. Then don't do it at all. Right? So I, so think about I, I, where the money comes out. Go on around. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not, I've got so much to say. And then, uh, you, you, you're just reminding me of you, you, you're putting all these uh, pictures out here, which I've just got to have a swing at. Um, it's such a wonderful example. I've forgotten it till just then of what you said. So in the GFC, so it's hard. I mean, like there, there could be worse um, yeah. share market disasters. Absolutely. But that was, you know, historically it was one of the worst we've, we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the market went down close to 50% top to bottom. Um, uh, Peter Thornhill does some great charts on this, mm. and and what and dividends were cut right like a lot, but I think the dividends like dropped top to bottom fifteen yeah. percent. So in other words, to your point, if if you're looking at your your quote unquote wealth and your your portfolio is like oof, 50, I'm fifty percent poorer than I was. In mm-hmm. terms of your income stream, you took a fifteen percent pay cut on one year. And temporarily, and then the second, that's right. That's and right. then, and then, within two years, you're back to what you were. In three years, you're, you're getting pay rises again. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, this is the goal, right? That not everyone's going to be in this situation, but yes, that's yeah. the goal. It's where your money's working for you is like you can be, you can afford to be really ambivalent about volatility when it's just like I'll just take the income, thanks. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where you're going here is, is is just to sort of say that may be what changes when you when you get closer to the to the drawdown period. Correct. And so Nicholas needs to decide where he's at in terms of how much cash he's got and when he needs the money. But that that should tell you a bit. It kind of dovetails into the forty year thing I was talking about before. Um, so so you know think about that. Um, it, it, by the way, it'll feel scarier when you're close to home in retirement. When, you, when your asset value falls, even though it doesn't need to, because it'll just be like you know you don't get any more. You're not adding more, right? So also this is all I get. When it falls, it feels even scarier. Uh, mate, last bit of advice is the tough love bit, which is the only realistic and as certain as it gets way to maximise your retirement is to increase your savings rate. So I, I could tell you all sorts of things about what to invest in and whatever. I've just done that. I could talk about you know timeframes. I've done that. Um, this is now, this is buckle down time. This is, 
I can, I've got earnings power for the next 15 years-ish. And at the end of that time, I'm done. So whatever I can save between now and then is what pays for my retirement. So just 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 triple down on that. Um, really think hard about what that looks like for you. Uh, I'm not saying eat, eat baked beans and whatever. What I am saying is you're a long time retired. So just think really hard about what sacrifices you can or choose to make between now and then so that when you do you know uh, hand the keys back to the boss and walk out of the office you've got the money you want to have and that can feel unfair and you know 10 or 15 years is a long time and you probably worked hard already for your working life thinking oh man you know really i've got to do that when i'm 50 55 60 uh, surely i'm past that you can choose those you can make those choices but that's why it's the tough love bit this is there, there is no plan b there is no other choice you either say more or you save less and in retirement, you will bear the results of that savings rate. So I'm just going to say, save hard. Uh, one last one, Ram, actually, while I was talking about that, I thought of one more. Because you're so close to retirement, um, think really serious about using superannuation. Uh, younger people, I often say, do a bit inside super, a bit outside super, because it gives you flexibility. If you're at a point now where you're probably not going to retire early because it doesn't sound like you've got the nest egg to do it, then if that's off the table for you, um, not that again, I don't want to. I don't want to wish it on you, but if that is off the table in terms of the option, because you're in that still in that accumulation time, then use the tax advantages of super to your best, um, to, to their best results. You may want to see an accountant and get some advice or a financial planner on specifically what super rules are available to you and when you might use them. Um, but I would, I would absolutely, if I was someone who was 50, 55, 60, and saying I'm, I'm making up for lost time, take every advantage you can get. And I would at that point, if you're saying I started late. It, you know, I've got to make every post a winner. I would absolutely give up flexibility personally and just maximize the tax benefit of using superannuation as the vehicle between now and then. Yep. I've done a heap of talking, Ram. What, what can you add? Well, well, not without more than a few interruptions from me. And so I think, I think between us, you, we've, we've answered it well. We answered the question. I just, I just, I guess there was a little other part to the to the question that Nicholas mm-hmm. had, and and I, I guess the the shorter part of it was he he, he just makes mention of um, mm-hmm. I can highly recommend the services of a good financial planner, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's true. We, we've been, well, I've been pretty brutally critical of a yep. lot in that industry and yep. i think not not without good reason i think i think a lot of the planners i know actually um they're good ones and they agree <laughs> and i think <laughs> that's, people that's, in glass that's absolutely true well you know and people in glass houses i mean god mm-hmm. the number of rent seeking cowboy scumbags in the finance industry mm-hmm. is like we're, we're outnumbered mate seriously yeah. so i i you know I, I give real estate agents a hard time too but like <laughs> again people in glass houses right so yep. i'm yep. very i'm very cognizant of that but Nicholas makes a good point. A good financial planner is worth yep. their weight in gold. And um, yeah, so so seek seek out the services of a good one if if uh, if you need some help. Yep, go fee for service. Don't don't pay them an annual fee. Go and get some. Go and get a statement of advice drawn up so you can have a, a game plan for the rest of your life. Yep. Um, mate, let's go to a question from Hugh. Hi Scott and Ram. Hope all is well. I appreciate the pod, especially when things are volatile as it helps me keep the long-term perspective. i got a question for the pod, says Hugh. I bought some SaaS companies last year near the peak. And he inserts an emoji of a man facepalming. He says, so the smaller ones took big hits, but I'm still bullish on their long-term potential to compound. And so I still dollar cost average into them and have clawed some losses back. But my overall position in these is still in the red. I would love your thoughts on taking a hit and selling. And buying back in, he says in brackets, if they are my best ideas, for a purely psychological reason. He says, I am not getting the tax offset. of simply not being in the red when you check the account. Currently, I turn my emotional brain off 
and focus on the red getting smaller, but it still hurts from time to time. I love this question, Ram, because we spent a lot of time talking about the rational, mechanical, best things. Hugh's kind of saying, hey, dudes, you know, this is hurting my brain. This is, you know, to some degree distressing in, in small and large ways. Um, how do I manage myself? How do I manage my own brain, my emotions uh, when it comes to trying to stay the long course, but kind of feel like he's getting punched around the head every time he opens the brokerage account? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to say, I'm tempted to say, yeah, do it because... Mm-hmm. Well, on one hand, I'm not because what's the difference, right? You're just tricking yeah, yourself and you correct. know you're tricking yourself. Yes. The other hand, I've made mention, I've, I've observed this myself when I haven't mm. done it for that reason, but I have sold. Um, and then thinking I'll buy back in, try to lock in a loss or something like mm. this. Uh, you can't wash trade uh, ATO. <laughs> I know you're listening and I'm not talking, I'm not advocating for that. <laughs> But there have been times where I thought I'll just take the loss and then I changed my mind and I bought back. Anyway, so there are there are um, situations Page where- Page <laughs> You can't prove anything. Um, there, there are, there, what was fascinating, and I've talked about it on the pod before, what was fascinating is that once I no longer was an owner, my intentions changed. Like, actually, maybe I won't buy back the same shares in the same proportions. And it was just, a big, I, I, I decoupled myself from what they call the endowment effect. It was just sort of like, I just, I just found that I looked at things much more objectively. And it was a surprise to me. I didn't expect for that to right. happen. And like, I'm just yeah. going through the motions here. And I was like, yeah. actually, and, and I don't want to put the listener into this bucket, but you, you think, well, no, I'm still a believer. No, 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 it's still good. And I, I know I do this a lot where you go, oh, you, you're preserving your ego here. It's like, oh, no, no, yeah. I wasn't wrong. I was just early and, you know, dollar cost area and it's still okay. It's still okay. And then you sell and you go, actually, I don't have to go back into that <laughs> You know, and, and it's, it's actually a little bit cathartic. So I think, I think um, there is something to be said, for, particularly when there is a loss there because yeah. there's no capital gains consideration. Mm. Um, and the market will screw with your brain in the interim because you'll sell <laughs> and they go, I've got to get back in before it ba- it's going to bounce as soon as they sell. Yeah. Or, and you don't, you don't you buy know. in and it goes up, oh, I knew it was going to, I've done oh, it again. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. why did they? Or it drops further. Well, maybe I'll wait a bit longer and you start getting into mm-hmm. all that like silly bugger kind of stuff. Yeah. But but uh, there is something to be said for like, hey, I just, I need a, I need a mental reset. Mm. I'm going to sell everything. Uh, and I'm just going to take... I'm going to take a week or two to mm. really reevaluate things without the baggage of sunk cost, without the baggage of anchoring on my purchase price or whatever my profit or, or my loss in this case situation kind of is. Mm. And it's, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm hesitating a little bit because I can hear people going, well, what's the difference? Can't I do that at any point? Yes, you can, mm. but, but there is something going on emotionally, psychologically that just makes these decisions a bit easier and more objective when you don't have that baggage with you. 100%. Uh, I, you kind of said, oh, I should say no because I'm just tricking myself. Tricking yourself is is a superpower. Yeah. Um, I, I've said so many times about our evolutionary brains suck at investing. It is, I, I've, I've said also, I define successful investing is the ability to overcome our evolutionary biases and, and shortfalls. That's oh, yeah. literally, that's I, literally I would rather have that. If you, if you offered me a choice between an extra 20 IQ points and Lord oh. knows I need that or just the ability <laughs> to be far more emotionally tolerant. Yes. Yes. Like I'll take I'll take the I'll take yeah. the latter any day of the week. I don't know twenty IQ points to double my IQ, mate. So I might, I, might <laughs> take, I might take the IQ <laughs> points, right. but after that I might I might. No, you're yeah, you're right. So so I guess my point is, um, Hugh, you, you know, 
trick yourself. You know, the, the, there's not, and the other thing, by the way, is when you do trick yourself, you know you're tricking yourself and it still works. Yeah. It's like flattery, right? Crazy. Someone flatters you, you're like, you're just flattering me, but I still feel better. So, so or, you nice. know, I, I walk past the, the uh, impulse aisle at the checkout. Like, I know what you're doing, you bastards. And yes, I'll buy the Kit Kat, but I know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, and because it, it, we're just not, our brains, we're not that smart. We're not, you know, we're smart. We're not that capable of controlling our evolutionary biology we just, we just you can't right so um so when can you i give go, you can i give you one other quick example of that it's uh, and I, I you know i deal with with this business is the one dollar 99 yeah exactly $2. oh totally is that know? right so i mean the membership we charge is ten dollars less than a round number you yeah. know and it's like yeah. i don't yeah. you know i'm doing it because they, they have done so many studies yeah. so many studies it's not like i think i'm tricking anyone right like, mm-hmm. it's like we all know it but it just Wow, nine ninety sounds a lot cheaper than one thousand. It just Correct. it just does, yep. right? Yeah, under a thousand bucks. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, anyway. um, so I'm a big, I, I'm a mass, and that's why I've said regularly. The, you know, good advice is one thing, but the advice that's taken is all that matters. So, what whatever you need to do, Hugh and every listener, to get yourself in the right headspace, even if it is completely made up and trickery and artificial or whatever, and you know you're doing it, it will still help you potentially if that's something you need to do. Um, so I would do the same program. I, you know, again, I can't tell you what you should do here, but I would, if I was in that space and it makes the pain go away and lets me refresh, then do it. I love your suggestion, Ram, about waiting two weeks. I think that's really, really, yeah. really smart because yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I know Hugh's a nice person. We've we've communicated before. I'm going to say though that I reckon there's part of Hugh who, which is dollar cost averaging when priced are lower, to make him feel like the the loss is less. Right, I bought some shares at two. Then I bought some more at one, and now they're a dollar thirty. So, see, I've you know at least I at least my, I've, I've lowered my cost base. Therefore, I'm not losing quite as much money, and that's great. If you can buy at a dollar and make it do- go to dollar thirty three, of course you should do it. But I reckon part of that is I like it, and I want to keep liking it. I'm going to keep dollar cost averaging because it makes me feel better. Now, part of it is you've done it, Ram. I've done it. You should buy more at cheaper price if they're cheap for the wrong reason. We talk about ResMed on Friday. If you liked it at you know thirty eight bucks, you'd love it at twenty five. So you know again. Um, feel you know feel free to, to buy a lower price and absolutely lower your cost base not because it lowers your average price just because if the price is going to be higher in future you should buy at a lower price if you get it so by all means do that but just be careful you're not dollar cost averaging to make yourself feel like you're making up for some previous mistakes and i think that's my other thing is because it's lower now is it better value only if the previous price was attractive if you bought a stock for a buck it's really worth 20 cents Buy more at 50 cents because it's half price doesn't help you, right? Yeah. If it's worth $1.50, then feel your boots. But really ask yourself whether the market was right, is wrong now or was wrong then. Uh, and just make sure that that promise is genuinely there. I love, I love, mate, you think about dollar cost averaging. I love you continuing to keep the faith if you love the business. If that's all true, do it. But to your point and to Ram's point, I think it's a great idea. Sell. Wait two weeks. And ask yourself, how much of that do you want to buy back? Um it's it's so powerful. I I, I held shares. We've haven't talked about this one in a while. Around the old Gauge Roads, Goods in Australia, right? <laughs> I held those because I held them because I held them. I have not considered those shares. I haven't thought about them once since I sold them, right? And so it's, I don't I don't worry if I missed a trick. I'm like, oh, that was good. Got got you know, fix that problem, solve that. It's probably, it's probably up since done. you sold, right? Probably. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, but but I'm not. It's not, and I haven't even thought when I thought about what should I buy next. It's not even been in my brain, let alone I ailed them for what five years, something stupid like that, uh, you know. And then I finally sold them. You would think, well, if I just sold them, maybe they should be my, you know, should I add them back? I've not even. Get, I've thought about a million other stocks, never good drinks. Or actually, or in hindsight, man, I'm just looking at the price. You, you probably did well. 
Oof, I, I doubt you've got any regrets. Yeah, lucky. There you go. Uh, but having a look, that's that's almost the point. So just just be be thoughtful about that. Um, yeah, I think I think selling, particularly with a loss, because you're not going to pay any tax, and then working out whether you really want to own them, um, it just lets you change your your perspective. Uh, the same is true in reverse, by the way, Ram. Uh, Tom Gaynor, who is the chief investment officer, he might be CEO these days, co CEO of Markel. It's like a mini Berkshire in the US. I own Great shares company. for the record. Mm. Um, he has a portfolio I had at the time. I've, I heard him speak four years ago, probably. I think it was 2019. Um, about his the, the stocks he owned. And he owns hundreds of stocks. And you kind of go, hang on, he's supposed to be the mini Buffett, mini Berkshire. What's he do with hundreds of stocks in his portfolio? He owns tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of hundreds of stocks. And his rationale is, a, he tricks himself. He's like, I will pay more attention when I own the shares. Yep. So if he wants to learn out, learn more about a company, he buys a little bit just so he forces himself, not forces himself, he tricks himself into caring more and spending more time thinking about it because he owns it. Now, could he do that without owning it? Of course he could. He could have a watch list and just do it, but he knows himself and he knows he's going to take more of an interest once he owns the shares. And I would highly, highly, highly encourage anybody out there to trick yourself. Take advantage of your evolutionary biology. You, frankly, it, it works against us in investing most of the time. If you can, if you can use it, if you can, you know, take advantage of it when the opportunity arises, then absolutely do that, um, and and you know, use some of those tricks in your favour rather than rather than always against you. Yep, I love it. I love all of it. Um, don't don't disagree. Nice. Um, <laughs> I, I have a, a a thought or a question uh, from Percy. Uh, I don't think I read this. Percy sent us a message back in June. He says another one uh, on the weekend. Uh, the June one, I'm not sure if I've read. Um, he, uh, he said, Hi, Scott, I'm still loving the pod on the pod machine and Andrew has turned into a great partner for the banter and I love his passion. If I ever get to meet him, I'll have to ask him what that scarecrow thing is that he's into. He says, lol, laughing out loud, then duck. Uh, so, so there you go. Thank you for that, person. You better duck. <laughs> Here's the new one. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I have a, I'm still loving the pod. I have a boring question. I'm trying to read some more financial reports to get a better understanding. I have a question. How can a company be positive operating cash flow but have an EBITDA loss? What am I missing? How is it possible, mate, to actually have cash coming in and still report an accounting loss? It's usually going to be timing reasons, right? So it, it may be – so you have to register – you can't you can't recognize a sale until that transaction has been completed, but maybe the cash hasn't been collected yet. Maybe in some instances, cash is paid up front before the delivery of certain milestone payments. There's all the, it depends on the nature of the product and the nature of the sales contracts and all of these kinds of things. But there are often timing mismatch. Actually, interestingly enough, a couple of companies I follow rather closely had a little mm. bit of a mismatch because they had, they had some big orders come through right at the end of the financial year. Mm. And so they couldn't report that uh, they... The cash flow did not reflect that, the, the cash flow statement. It was like, they pointed it out, right? So well, mm, you, mm. any astute investor will notice this. Here's the explanation. Now, they could be lying. <laughs> uh, it'd be really dumb if they were because they're getting a whole bunch of trouble. And um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but, so, so, uh, but, but yeah, I don't know. Is there something else I'm missing there? Timing's the big one, right? Timing's the big one, mate. The other one is just accruals, which is kind of a version of timing to your point. Oh, it okay. Might be, right. might be previous accruals, for example, or previous expenses. So it's possible that uh, it's almost the reverse, or not the reverse, but this is the, the right. after. You're doing the before, I'll add the after, which is you can have a situation where you have expenses based on having received that cash up front in a previous period 
Yep. And then you have more expenses now because you're you're you know, the 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 you're recognizing the accounting expense even though you're not paying cash out to match it because of the way that that transaction is done. So it can be the other side of of the same thing in that context it's also possible that um we talked a lot about uh, capitalizing stuff on friday a little bit anyway um accounting choices basically oh. what you know what what is revenue what is an expense um you know we talked about swapping assets so in some cases it's almost the reverse actually you can have cash outflows and, a, and an accounting profit you can have cash inflows and accounting loss again based on those accounting decisions it's not common and the larger the business, the less likely this is to be an impact. I, I would, I don't know the company person didn't mention it. Um, I would suspect it's probably a smaller business where the timing and the flows really does matter a lot um, yeah. because they should have don't have. It might be a newer company as well. Um, that that's usually the case. Much much easier to have an, an accounting loss uh, when you've got a massive write down, for example, of a of a, an asset and still have a positive cash flow. Harder to have an accounting profit and a, and a cash outflow, but that's that's often the the case. It's sometimes handy, particularly for smaller companies that do report on a calendar basis. You yep. you can sort of like plot it, just break open a Google sheet or something like that, and just plot EBITDA. Yeah. And that, that the lines should really move in the right direction when you start. Like you can you can there are very reasonable explanations one period to the next, but they really mm. shouldn't diverge too much over time. That's 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 more of a red flag. <laughs> if there is a consistent miss there, something that's seems a very to good be point. going on. You know? Unl- unless there is something in the way of you know on- ongoing capitalization of something or ongoing expense of something. Uh, a- easy example, right, is take two businesses. They spend a million dollars on a on a piece of software. Yeah. Uh, one company says I'm going to I'm going to expense it in year one, so they have a massive cash outflow for the million dollars and an expense of a million dollars because you know the, the accounting expense is the same. The other company says oh, I'm going to use this for ten years. I spend yeah. the million dollars up front, so that's a cash outflow. And then over the next 10, 10 years, I'm going to recognize $100,000 a year as an expense. And that's the, uh, the so-called matching principle. I match the expense against the activity itself. This is a 10-year asset. I use it for 10 years, and it's gone. Um, cars are a great example, by the way, of this. It's depreciation oh, yeah. rather than an expense, but the same kind yeah. of idea of you buy a car up front, you pay the cash. It's got a five-year working life or 10-year life, so you expense it. Oh, you depreciate it over that period of time. Now, EBITDA is before depreciation. So this is not what's going to cause this particular one person that you asked about. Um, so don't want to keep that. I don't want to confuse them. But there are those sorts of accounting decisions are normally normally what's behind that kind of circumstance. It's also possible things like... Um, it, it, yeah, it, 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 it's it's largely it's it's accounting decisions is the best way to put it and mm-hmm. and accountants can decide anything revenues as you said ram expenses uh, i'll give you an example at the motley fool we um take a payment up front for a 12-month term for our memberships if we balance our books up to six months we've got 12 months worth of cash but only six months worth of revenue the other six months has to be considered an unearned asset uh you know some cash we've received it will become an ex- a revenue over the following six months but the timing difference matters a lot. So like you said, mate, people who, companies who sign contracts in the last couple of months of, of a year, uh, they, they they deliver on two months worth of services, but they get 12 months worth of cash. Uh, and that can can be a bit screwy. Again, yeah. it's not really common. You wouldn't expect to see it a lot, but those are some of the reasons. Again, firstly, if there's a particular company, there may be something else going on. And the last thing is there could actually be shenanigans, frankly. Um, so if you're asking, you know, how, how, would it, how would it legally, rationally, you know, appropriately be possible? They're the answers. Could a company be playing funny buggers? Yeah, that's also potentially true. 
Yeah, a couple couple other thoughts on that. The mm. I, the the good management teams. I don't know, in fact, it's it's pretty common, really. They'll break it out for you. They'll yeah, they'll that's they'll true. be at pains to point it. There'll be slides there, and yes, they will bias towards the mm-hmm. metrics that you know cast them in the best light. And the but there mm. should be a you know an appendix there that re- reconciles you know things and and, and lines it all mm. up for you. Mm. What's really great these days is that increasingly companies are holding their briefings online and they're mm. allowing um, uh, just private investors to join. So you often see it on the ASX announcements. So, you know, here's our results. We're holding a briefing here. Here's a link. Register to join. You can join. You can ask questions, right? Mm. Um, so I, I really encourage you to to do that. Um, a lot of people, it's funny. I sort of mentioned to some guys, oh, it's a real hassle. I was like, dude, you have literally got $10,000 invested in that. <laughs> yes. How long did you work and save yeah. to get that? And you, yeah. you can't be bothered to tune into a, like a, a you know, 45 minute Zoom session. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> do it, do it and ask. Yeah. And, and, and too often, I think we're all, oh, I feel like this is a dumb question mm-hmm. and people are going to love us. Who cares? I, I, yeah. I find it a super, the older I get, the less I care. And I'm and I'm and more often than not, I find that when you do ask the quote unquote dumb question, like fifty percent of the room goes, oh, "Thank God it's not just me." I'm so glad someone asked that question because I didn't get it either. And even if it is a legitimately dumb question, and you're the only one who who, who didn't get it, so what? You're allowed yeah. to ask it, right? And, and you learn something. You learn something, and then, yeah. and then you'll you'll be you'll you'll you, you don't learn unless you ask. I look at some of the briefings I attended as a younger, and I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed by what I said. <laughs> I'm just like I cringe, like I, yeah, like yeah. I feel as though as an older person now, if there was a 20 year old in there asking this question, I just want to slap them right. And, <laughs> but that's how you learn. It's how it you is, learn, and really and is. so so don't don't be um, don't be yeah. too worried about that. The final thing I will say too, because this does come up a lot. Mm. As I think we, you're right. There, there are absolutely financial shenanigans. That, actually, that's a good mm. book title, and there is a good book called "I've Got It on My Kindle: um, Financial <laughs> Shenanigans." <laughs> so it just takes you through some of the uh, some of the you know, shenanigans that, that, yeah. that accountants and, and CFOs can can get up to. Yeah. So they're possible and they happen. But I, I feel as though some people I know at least are so cynical and jaded that they, they see it everywhere. <laughs> and the, the reality is, is that they're the exception to the rule. Mm, mm. And I tend to take the approach that I will take you at face value, unless there's a very good reason not to, unless there's all kinds of red flags and you've, you know, tripped all kinds of different tripwires. I, 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 would, I would take management at face value because when you, when you adopt that stance, you you jump at every single shadow that comes along, and you never stay invested for. And, and, and statistically, most are going to be on the money because what they're really risking is very serious penalty, <laughs> you know, and well, fraud essentially. So again, it happens, but it is it is an exception. So I think as investors, the best we can do is just assume that they they are telling the truth because 98 percent of the time they are right. That's fair. That's fair. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Question from uh, someone who asks what we call them Lucky. So there you go, Lucky. Thank you. Please call me Lucky. Not my real name, though I like it. Says Lucky. (laughs) A serious question, not specifically designed to bait Scott. He says in brackets, who I love listening to, especially when baited, but I know I can be <laughs> annoying. My lucky nephews have inherited about $150,000 each. The rule from the grave 
is that it must be invested until each is 32 years old. They can enjoy the income until then, but not the capital. Capital becomes available at 32, which is six or seven years away. The hope is that they get an idea of what it's like to have some assets. Perhaps income from them and or seeing them grow will inspire them. They nor their parents have ever had any assets. Investments will be in their own names. Do you have any sage advice? Stocks, question mark, ETFs, question mark, etc. What might we mention to people? Not these two because we can't give specific advice. What would we suggest to a 25-year-old who had 150 grand to invest uh, and maybe those who might help them invest that money, knowing that they've got a six or seven year wait till they can get to the capital? Um, what's what, what investment ideas, uh, approaches to investing it, ways to think about uh, trying to help them learn at the same time, Ram? Oh, God, what a, what a brilliant... Um gift not just on the size of the money but i I think waiting to 32 by the way anyone who's under 32 it feels like that's a long time away i can tell you on the other side of that 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 just (laughs) you know (laughs) oh what i would give don't don't Um, wish don't wish those six or seven years away yeah exactly uh, it'll come quicker than you than you Uh imagine and and i I, it's not it's not to sound critical but you (laughs) you were just going to make better decisions at 32 you just are right like you, you Again, I just I, I think if you, to my earlier point, if you don't look back on the things that you said, thought, mm-hmm. and did five years ago and cringe, you're not growing, frankly. And if I ever reach a point where I where I don't have that, I, I feel as though well, I, I'm I'm stagnating. So I think it's a I think it's a wonderful thing that you will look back as a 32 year old and go, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I didn't get that money then and there because I would have bought something dumb with it, you know, or I would have yep. would have wasted it. And and that's that is being critical because I actually know whole bunch of people in their 20s are just like so beyond their years in wisdom and the rest of it. So I am generalizing here. Um, but I do think it's a wonderful thing. And a couple of things. Firstly, well, actually, that that could be 300 grand in six or seven years. You know, if you take the rule of 72 and you take mm-hmm. the uh, the average compound growth rate of the market, that, that could absolutely double, right? Um, it's uh, So I, I love it. I love it. I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, what would I do? I would be tempted to maybe, maybe the 80-20 rule. I'd be tempted to go 80% in a low-cost broad-based index ETF mm-hmm. because I'm going to probably go okay with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if the market's in for a bit of an ordinary decade or so, you know, I'm probably going to go okay. Um, and it's, it's going to be a very easy sleep at night factor. I actually, though, would encourage a bit of stock picking with the other 20% mm-hmm. and not to – not to encourage a speculative stance, but to to give a bit of a taste for, I guess, not just the rewards, but the risks that that can bring, but also to introduce you to the the concept of of investing in stocks directly. What makes a good company? What makes a stock cheap? Why would this go up over time? What are the kind of things that I need to think about? And you'll probably make a whole bunch of dumb investments. Lord knows I did and still am, right? Like you just, you just will, but, but what a great experience. And and like, if, if, if it does all go pear shaped on that 20%, you know that the vast bulk of your, your money is okay. Bit of compounding on top of that, you'd be better off than, than, than just getting the 150 grand in cash. And I'd probably keep, but I'd probably keep it um, simple. The temptation might be for someone who's who has a who has a high time preference 
would be is like, okay, so I get the income, but I don't get the capital. All right, I'm just going hardcore into income stocks because <laughs> yeah, then, right. then I'm going to get a bunch of yeah. um, dividends that I can spend now. And I would probably urge you not to do that because if there's multiple cousins and siblings here that are all doing that, I'm sure that the one who, who focuses less on the income at the end of that seven-year period will probably be, be better off. And, a, and we'll have the last point. laugh. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, you, you mentioned uh, being thirty-two. I remember the is uh, now now passed away. The, the Fairfax columnist Sam DeBrito uh, wrote a wrote a book called No Tattoos Before You're Thirty, which I always thought was, was <laughs> a great, great advice for life. Right? It's just like you know you are. By the way, New Zealand is talking about giving the vote to, to teenagers, 16, 17 year olds. And as much as I love the, the the new generations, they're probably smarter than some of their older counterparts. Uh, I also know from my wife, who's an educator, that. Uh, the development of the frontal lobe for boys in particular doesn't finish till like 21, 22, 23. I'm like, ah, you know, I love our teenage listeners and I love teenagers in general. And my nephews are wonderful people, but I'm not sure they're ready to cast their votes on, on the future of the country. So yes, wait till, you, wait till you're at least 30. Is, is, I think that's very good advice from the grave. Uh, lucky as you, as you, the way you put it. Um, oh dear. I, <laughs> I'm going to say, well, so there's, there's two things here, right? And this is where it's easy for us now at our age with our circumstances to give advice. And it's harder to be 25 and 26 these days, particularly with the cost of housing. We've talked a little bit about housing. Andrew might have a view every now and again on housing. Uh, if you haven't listened before, I, I'm absolutely understating that. I have some um, thoughts. Yeah. You have some thoughts. So, and I'm, so I'm, kind of, I'm kind of torn because part of me wants to say this is their, this is their lotto ticket win, right? If you start with 150 grand at 25, 26, you're going to have a squillion dollars when you retire, and so this is this is their this is their golden ticket. This is the Charlie the Willy Wonka golden ticket, right? This gets them to more than a million dollars at retirement under any significant, you know, fully invested circumstance. And so part of me is kind of like, you know what? Lock this thing up, let it do its thing. You know, they they will have the most comfortable retirement they could imagine because they're going to keep working by the way and have super contributions and other things. This is literally the golden ticket. On the other hand, 150 grand start plus whatever it earns over the next six or seven years will get them into the housing market in a way they may not be able to currently. And that in itself is its own golden ticket. But the 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 way you then deal with this is, is very different and, and it changes the circumstances quite markedly. Because you've got a chance to do a few things here. You can you can show them the power of passive investing, of just letting, you know, don't have to do anything, just put it there, look, watch it grow. When 150 grand becomes 160, then 180, then 200, then 240, that is just, you, you quantify the dollar value of the gain. That is mind-blowing. should be mind-blowing for those, I'll say kids. They're not kids, they're adults, but you know what I mean. Um, and and the opportunity is, is is massive. So part of me is thinking, you know what, just seeing that hopefully lets them continue with it. The other part of me is thinking, well, you know, if I want to take out and buy a house, I don't want to stop them and stand in their way. Um, but the opportunity cost is, is significant um, of either, right? So, so have a think about that. Maybe there's a bit of both. So that's kind of, you know, thinking that through is, makes my answer really difficult because I don't really know specifically what to go with it. I, I love, as you said, the idea of having some assets, seeing it grow, seeing the income from them, uh, give, them a se- give them a sense of what's possible. That, that is really, really powerful. And I think it's very hard to, to uh, overstate the power of, of watching that happen. I, I think... I'm probably going to go something close to RAM. Um, if they are not even slightly... Well, so here, I'll go back a step. If they're not ready to pick their own stocks, they're not going to listen to you, go ETFs. 
Um, scattergun dartboard, too much money in too many stocks without proper diversification could could actually end up costing them money or whatever. If they if they love, you know, uh, I, won't, I won't name the stocks, a couple of hot stocks right now, they might be hot stocks in a year. So they lose 50 grand of that. Like, this is a stupid idea. I can't believe I did this. What a, what a terrible idea. So I think, honestly, starting... Ram and I have talked about, you know, making mistakes when we were younger, but starting with small amounts. This is not that. <laughs> this is starting with a lotto ticket. So I really... I've got to say, like, I love individual stocks. Most of my portfolio is in them. But I really would start with massive amount of etf exposure and then i would try and by the way they're adults so they can make their own decisions but if you can encourage them or they're listening to this i would encourage them to then invest in a, a range of companies and, and a broad range right so split it up this is the etf bit this is the company bit make sure it's diversified make sure there's a lot of companies there so a lot i don't mean a million i mean la- a large enough number that one company's successful failure is not going to put them off the whole idea um I would encourage you, even though they're normally just for, for teenagers, but they're a bit older, but they're just starting investing. Because again, because it's a lump sum, try and get some of those investing lessons that are, these are pieces of businesses. So I really would encourage you to find, if they, I mean, if they love business and they love the idea of running through the statements and reading the announcements, then find some cool, un, unknown, you know, interesting businesses to follow. Some of the stuff that Ram likes for sure. But if they're not that person, if you just want to kind of almost make it simple, Go with some really well-known big businesses that they can go, I own a bit of that. And I, I, won't, I, won't, I don't want to necessarily use examples, but think about a, you know, West Farmers that owns Bunnings or a, or a Woolies or a Telstra or something. They're not great investment ideas necessarily. But some element of that because I've had family members who've said at one point, I'm a family member who owns some David Jones shares. And you walk into David Jones and he said to me, I, f- I, I walk in differently. I feel like I own the place. I look around, I, I see it differently. And that in itself is so incredibly powerful as an educational opportunity that I wouldn't want you to miss out on that. So this, it's a bit of a rambling answer. It's lucky I, I can't I can't be more uh, specific because you know everyone's different and the circumstances are different in terms of what they might want to do with the money, their own personalities, how likely are they really want to get into this. Um, but I think help them see the power of compounding, help them understand what it means to be an investor, to think about it. And if you're interested in investing yourself, try and find some businesses that you can both own. Um, because you can have those conversations. If you own Woolies and they own Woolies, chat about the Woolies result. Chat about what, what's going on in the stores. Chat about the impact of Amazon. Chat about whatever it is. Make it a, um, hopefully, their, their nephew. So maybe it's something you can do with them as a, as a bit of a you know nephew-uncle thing. Uh, but make it, make it a conversation. Make it interesting. Ha- have those conversations regularly um, in things they're interested in. Uh, last one, quickly, don't ignore overseas opportunities. Um, largely for that buy-what-you-know thing. Um, I own some of these, but think about Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, um, you know, I can't think, whatever, whatever the usual ones, Microsoft, uh, the stuff that the stuff that they're going to use and know, again, for exactly the same reasons. Any yeah. more on that, Ram? Um, uh, yeah, just a couple quick thoughts. I awesome. think um, a lot of us will be listening to this going, oh, gosh, I wish old Uncle Fred left me. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I would say, I mean, not you know, most of us are not in that situation, but you can mm. still do exactly the same thing if you can scrape mm. together a thousand bucks, two thousand, whatever it is, right? Yep. You, the, the same lesson will be learned, like, you know, to, to your 25-year-old sort of say, hey, mm. look, when you're 32, I'm going to give you this money. The catch is you just can't, whatever that money is, whatever you can afford to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it's 500 bucks, right? But, but yep. the, here's the rule. You just can't touch it till you're 32. Same exact setup. Um, mm. The maths is the same. The dollar yes, values correct. are different. Correct. But, That's right. But you know, that's the such a good is, point. That's you're gonna such a good you're point. still gonna double it after seven. Again, I'm assuming ten percent. So it could be five yeah. percent. It could be twenty. Who knows? Yep. But just it's a nice round number. You will yep. on a ten percent. You will basically double Probably it in seven years yep. time. Yep. 
Um, the other thing that's always nice too is that you might be surprised for me to say this, but I, I actually think it makes a huge <laughs> amount of sense to like secure some some shelter for yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very big non-financial return in that. Um, and I can testify to that. But I'm you can sure. kind of have your cake and eat it too, right? So you could say, well, let me let me just invest this away and compound it for seven years. Mm-hmm. In seven years, I'm going to take that 150 grand from old Uncle Fred mm-hmm. and I'm going to use that as a deposit in the house. The other 150, I'm just going to leave in there. And if I leave that in there, um, you know, I'm, that, that is then going to be another 300 grand by the time I'm 40. Mm. And that's going to be 600 grand by the time I'm 47. And it's going to be 1.2 million by the time I'm in my mid fifties. Um, so you can kind of, you can kind of do it. And, and, and the, and the experience itself, I think will sort of help illustrate that, but that very potential. And yeah, you can kind of, kind of, kind of do it both ways. No real wrong. The only wrong answer here, we've, we've really flogged this horse to death. The only really wrong answer is, is, you know, don't take it all and go to Vegas or buy a stupid sports car or something like that. Yeah, and, correct, correct. and, you know, because at 32, these, mm-hmm. these, these, uh, I was going to say kids, they're not kids. These young yeah. adults will look back and they will be, oh my gosh, I should have put it all in Bitcoin or, you know, oh my gosh, I should have put it all. You, know, you will know in, yeah. in that point in time that there was something much better you could have done. Mm-hmm. Well, why didn't I back our AI over Lord, I could have owned part of the global dictator at this point, but 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 there are no real wrong answers as long as you're 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 learning the lesson of compounding. Yep, nicely put, mate. Um, this uh, let's try and do this relatively quick fire, so if we can get through this one and get to another one. Good morning, a good Sunday morning, lad says. Now it's Nikhail, I think N I C H A L E. I'm gonna say Nikhail. I hope that's right. Mm-hmm. If I butchered that, Sounds I right. apologize in advance. Um. Or, in the reasons it turns out i love the show as always even though i have not loved the stock market this year hear that i hoping this thing you talk about compounding and cycles is real and it's worth it in the long run uh Nicole, i will say to you you don't have to believe uh or hope that the thing we're talking about is real uh, i will again bang on about the vanguard index chart if you if you're not sure go and look at that no promises the future doesn't have to look like the past blah 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 but that's that. You'll see cycles. You'll see volatility. You'll see bad years and good years, bad days and good days. Um, so don't don't. Uh, uh, you you have our conviction, but you haven't got our promise because we can't do that. Uh, but be be mindful of that. Just some basic questions, if possible. One: Who buys your shares when you sell them? I have some shares sitting in on Perla for the last month, still pending. Ram, who buys your shares when you sell them? Uh, I don't know, some random person out in the wide world. Um, so, so here's the thing is, well, usually the question is framed like, you know, who's selling them to me. Often, I think when you're new, you think when you're buying shares, you're giving it to the company. True, yeah. Uh, you, on an IPO, initial public offering, uh, when they're raising capital, that's exactly who you're giving it to. We'll give you yep. part of the company. You give us some cash. That's the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to own a part of us and we get to take your money and hopefully invest it sensibly. After yeah. that point, it's just, we're all just swapping it amongst ourselves. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it could be a broker, it could mm-hmm. be a short seller, it could be a bot, could could be me. <laughs> and and I, I actually think about it a lot still because, oh uh, gosh, you'll, you'll know this one, I forget. I, I'm going to say Charlie Munger because it's a safe bet, but it's always consider, you know, it, both parties to the trade think they're making the right trade. Right. Yeah. Someone's exactly. someone's someone's wrong here. Uh, well, actually, that even that's not true because the different circumstances. One one could be doing mm. something exotic, and you're just buying for the long term, and maybe you're both you're both getting a a, 
a benefit out of it. But generally speaking, you know, I think it's very worthwhile sort of saying, well, why is this person happy to sell me these shares at this price? Or why are they happy to, I want to sell these shares. Why is that? I don't know who they are, but someone's happy to buy them. Um, It's just, again, it's just, it's worth putting yourself in that hypothetical situation to to just try and um, force a little bit of intellectual honesty. But yeah, the short answer is some random person or institution. If they're still sitting waiting to be sold, which is what I'm assuming you're implying there, it might simply be that you're asking for a price no one wants to pay yet. So who who wants to buy your shares? Someone who thinks the price at which you're selling is attractive enough to buy those shares is is probably. Two, what is an A stock and what is a B stock? I assume this is a question probably related to Berkshire because we've talked about that a little bit. There are two classes of shares. I'll grab this one, Ram. Yeah. Effectively, a company can... Not, most Australian companies have just one class. You buy CBA shares, you're buying CBA shares. They're all the same. It's possible to have different classes of shares that have different entitlements to them, uh, different proportional parts. You can, you can, you know, one can be worth more because it has a, a larger. Think about. Um, let me get my pizza. I like to have a pizza again. Uh, you could have two size slices of a pizza, right? They're both slices, but one slice is uh, two centimeters wide. One slice is five centimeters wide. They're both slices. One is just a larger chunk, so it's worth more. You should pay more for that larger slice. When it comes to shares, you can ha- it can come with higher dividends or more voting rights, so those, the votes you cast are worth more. Uh, for all intents and purposes, mate, ignore all of it. It's largely irrelevant. It's a bit of a game that companies play. Not a bad way, just it's just not necessary. Uh, the the AB is the Berkshire example. Uh, Warren Buffett has shares that are now worth $500,000 each. Uh, what he did at some point in the past, he split them. He said, okay, not everyone can buy shares that expensive. I want everyone to have a chance. I'm going to break them up. So I'm going to keep the ones that I've got. He could have got rid of the A's altogether and went straight to B's. He probably kept them for largely ego Could have just done a share split. He could, he could have split the whole thing. He probably should have, honestly. But I think part of him likes the idea, and I'm not going to bag him, but part of the idea is like, that number gets higher over time. It's kind of a nice way to demonstrate value creation to people. Uh, yeah. Amazon, by the way, have split their shares entirely. So there is no second class. Uh, but in this case, that, that's kind of what's going on. It's just a, we just we see that a lot on the Aussie chunk. market. There's there's I think the most expensive share is like 300 bucks. It's, I don't know, it's a right. CSL or a Cochlear right. or something like mm-hmm. that. But Combat And they've done it yeah. before too, right? And it's just, it's purely psychological. Mm-hmm. But because, yes, exactly. It's surprising. You talk about like tricking ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like It's mm-hmm. surprising that I've had many people of the year say, oh, I, I want to buy, you know, X company, but shares are $60 <laughs> and this one here is $2. <laughs> That's right. What? Yeah. And, and, and companies know this. So they just go, well, we just cut the pizza into more slices. It's the same pizza. But if it makes you happy, it makes us happy. And there is there is probably something to be said from a liquidity standpoint at a certain point, mm, at a, a Berkshire kinda. point. Yeah. But other yeah, than that, right. it's, right. yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. I do, I don't mind, by the way, I, I, I don't, this is probably more for a private company perspective, but I don't mm. mind having classes of shares if you want people to have exposure, agree, but you actually. want to keep the control. So I agree, yeah. Um, yep. I haven't done it for my company, but I, I might, you know, if ever we're looking to raise capital, but I wanted to make sure that the key decisions were made by the, the sort of the mm-hmm. people I valued more, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to give other people exposure. I can do things like that purely just to sort of say, I want you to have exposure. I just don't want you to have a say and be upfront about that kind of stuff. That That's mm-hmm. legitimate to some extent as well. But yeah, you don't really see it in, in Australia too much. Last on one, I'm going to put markets. you on a two minute timer for this one. Oh no. We bought land on the Sunshine Coast just as <laughs> COVID hit and sold after COVID. We made a really good profit off this sale. I've tried to tell my partner that shares, despite our success, is better than real estate as an investment. However, 
given our share results in 2023, he thinks I'm crazy. Even I sometimes think about switching. Can you help explain why shares are better when we did so much better in real estate? Have a lovely Sunday afternoon with a beer in hand. Thank you. That's from Nikhail. I hope it's Nikhail. Oh gosh, you give me two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, let's go. go. Um, well, I mean, that is that is entirely spurious reasoning in both directions, whatever mm-hmm. way you want it. I can say, hey, I bought this this stock for 0.1 of a cent. Three weeks later, I sold it for 10 cents. Ergo, shares are the best investment that you can ever find. Now, is that is that evidence of that? No, I mean, I, there's there's two thousand shares out there. I can find, I can cherry pick the data to find something that will make Bitcoin look like it's an ordinary investment, right? Like it just anything that that that. That's, that's a lot that, of ticket. I bought a lot of ticket. I won, therefore, lot of tickets are great investment. Yeah, yeah, I put it all on black and look, yeah, double my right. money. I, like, why wouldn't you do that? So it's not to yeah, say that property is yeah. a bad investment, but if you yeah. want to take one example in one period in mm-hmm. time and then use that as evidence to support that that will always be the case. I think it's very spurious reasoning. Yeah. And if, if your part, if the situation was reversed and your partner was doing that with shares, I'd, I'd likewise say that. Yeah. Um, I would also say the, the, the best way, the best thing you can do is, is just, uh, let's do it again. Let's bring up the Vanguard. Chart, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's it, historically, it, really it tends to be that property over longer periods, I mean, investments are, are Equities over long periods of time have outperformed property. That being said, it's not a massive difference. Mm-hmm. And if if and the great thing about this is me saying this, by the way, the great thing about property <laughs> is it's so damn illiquid. So you yeah. can't. It sort of protects you from yourself because it's harder. It's much more friction and cost to, to buy and sell and buy and sell. So you tend to stay invested for longer, which tends to be a good thing. So if anyone, you know, I'm not going to die on the hill of saying you must invest in equities and property is is awful. I mean. Some property investments are objectively awful, given the given the risk return and the valuations and that kind of point. But my point my point being, as a as an asset class, I really don't. I don't. I think you're going to do much better than than if you're you know you're choosing between that and emu farms or you know just leaving cash under the mattress. So I don't know. Is that two minutes? Have I got any more time? Close enough. Well done. <laughs> uh, I'm going to add very quickly. I. We talk about asset classes. Individual stocks can do well. Individual properties can do well. Individual stocks can do badly. Individual properties can do badly. And so we're not. So we've never said you should not buy a great property at a great price. You should buy the worst shares instead. Yeah. Uh, what we would say is that you know from a top-down view, what's likely to happen? My very simple story on property versus shares is this: property prices can only grow up, can only go up. I'm sorry, uh, as a function of interest rates wages and people's propensity or willingness to pay. So let's break that down very quickly. If rates go down, you can afford to pay more for a property. If your wages go up, you can afford to pay more for a property. If people simply want to pay more of their income, I don't want to pay 40% of my income on property, I want to pay 60% instead, then property can go up. So those things are all true. Interest rates are higher than they've been in a long time. Uh, We'll probably go down again at some point, but how much further can they go down? Will they stay down lower? I don't know, but I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, how fast can wages grow? They're probably going to grow at three percent ish a year on over time, so that's probably your, your baseline. Uh, how much more can people spend for property as a portion of their incomes? Not much more. We know there's a whole lot of mortgage stress already, so I don't see the conditions for the property market as a whole to do particularly well from here. Despite the fact that some properties and even the whole market for the, during the eighties, nineties, and two thousands did really property was great, right? Yeah, yeah, because. Rates got low, <laughs> incomes went up because second incomes were added to households largely. Uh, there was great opportunity for that to happen. So I don't see a high probability of, of 
property continuing to perform as well as it has in the recent past. On the flip side, the ASX has 2,000 companies, which is a lot, except it's nothing like the X million small businesses there are around the country. So you get the cream of the crop. These are the businesses that have justified themselves that are on the market, that are big, that are largely defensible. A lot of rubbish, by the way, on there as well. But the cream of the crop is on the ASX and they will probably continue to take market share and grow faster than the economy over time because they are more successful than the average. Now, the same would be true if you took the top 2,000 properties, judged by some metric and said, will these do well in the property market as a whole? Maybe we're talking. But if you're asking me the property market, i.e. every house in Australia versus the ASX, which is... 2,000 listed businesses, of which there's probably 250 great companies. Will they do better over time? I think the answer is probably yes. So that's my bottom line answer, but also to Ram's point, check the Vanguard chart. Can I squeeze, hey mate, can I squeeze okay. one more comment I'll in? I'll go on. Just very quickly, I just, whether, it, whether it is an emu farm or a property <laughs> or a share, <laughs> I think the, 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 the great thing that you can, the great equalizer here is, is the cash flow lens. So yep. just ask yourself, what does this business, what can it reasonably spit out? Don't have to get super complicated. You know, maybe mm. you're Woolies. You're like, here's the earnings uh, on a per share basis, and I think it can grow 3 or 4%, 5% if you want. Well, I don't know. Pick your number. That's what it's going to yep. grow like. Here's my investment property that I'm currently considering, and here's the rent, and I think I can increase it this much each year. Or not. Make up the numbers, right? Whatever you want. Just make sure you're, you're being realistic. Uh, and here's my emu farm, and I think I can sell this many, I don't know, whatever you sell from an emu farm, eggs and, and meat, I suppose, <laughs> feathers, and, and, then, and, then, and then map it out and, and then account for all of the costs um, mm. and then to see which, one, see which one gives you the best cash flow profile. And that's the answer. That's the equalizer. That, that is the objective way of, of, of doing it. And yeah, I, I just, I feel as though I'm with you, mate. At this point in time, when, particularly in my neck of the woods where people are actually on negative real y- mm. yields, <laughs> um, net yields, it's sort of like, okay, uh, it, just, it, just, it just seems it is purely a greater full theory kind of play at this point in time. Let's finish with a, a question from Brando. He says, hi, comrades. Long-time listener, first-time questioner. And this is, I love this question. It's, just, it's a really unusual question, mate. And so I, I want to know your thoughts and I'm going to try and formulate mine. I would like to know your thoughts, says Brando, on the proportional mix of small, medium and large businesses in the Australian economy. Is there an ideal or optimum ratio an economy like Australia should be aiming for? Huh. Building on this, given your views on the ideal mix of enterprises, do you think Australian property, uh, policy settings, particularly tax which is set at different rates based on the company's size, is incentivizing this. Do we coddle small businesses to the detriment of large enterprises or do we give big business a free kick rather than fostering competitive medium-sized enterprises? Thanks in advance. Yours in foolery, Brando. I just love this wow. question. It's not That's an excellent question. To. Is it great? Yeah, I'm going to shoot from the hip here because I, I haven't thought what we about do. that. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I guess... So small business is the backbone of the economy. Like it employs far more people. Cliche alert. Cliche. Well, well, what were you going to say? Small business backbone of the economy. No, I'm just saying. Oh, that's, uh, that's a, oh yes, yes. <laughs> but it is, every, right? Every, every talkback host and politician in the country has said that line at least four times, I reckon. It's a fact though, right? It is a fact. Like, we, we put so much emphasis on bloody Qantas and, you know, these other and things. <laughs> and, and really, it's not, it's not really a I would argue it's not true capitalism. It's more crony <laughs> capitalism than anything else. Mm. It's sort of 
but you know favors for mates and and all this other kind of stuff and let don't don't get me started um so i i think that um small businesses are probably more important i think that they are the cut and thrust of capitalism more on the front mm-hmm. lines you tend mm-hmm. to as a result get more efficiencies and and as a society we get better outcomes because people are more more competitive in in competing for our for our dollars and 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 in being more competitive they're, they're all trying to offer more and more value for less and less and less and we all mm. we all do really well we touched before was on friday's episode about asx and its monopoly yes. status yes. and you know it's like monopolies generally don't do anyone mm. any favors except for the people who own the monopoly right and even then they're so bloated and and you know lazy that they it's it's not even the shareholders do well it's usually just some, some of the rent seekers in in control uh, of it so anyway I'm, I'm 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 veering off already into a tangent but that's <laughs> that's that'd be my quick take i i, I would yeah. i would be i would be far more likely as a voter to vote for policies that 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 were more favorable towards small business than to large businesses. Jerry Harvey like does not need- small business owner. Jerry Harvey he does not need another racehorse, right? He doesn't. <laughs> Alan Joyce does not need another Bentley. Um, but, you know, uh, so Mary- small business people like you are arguing for more small, like small business people like you. Is that what you is, am I hearing you say, I just want uh, yeah. I, I want more for, for straw man? Yeah, hearing here? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing far much more, you know? And it's, uh, it's, oh, it's, it's sort so of like- Just rears his ugly head again. Mary, who's 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 out there as a sparky, you know, mm-hmm. like helping thing, or or Bob with a hairdresser, just to sort of mix things up a little bit. Like they're <laughs> they're they're doing they're doing us as society much more uh, of a favor that I think than than some of these big you know mining magnates. <laughs> Clive Palmer and Gina can can they're doing okay without without any sort of government assist. Don't think I didn't know she mentioned hairdressers, mate. To take advantage of my lack of. Uh like a hirsuteness uh, podcast <laughs> machine. Um, I love this question, Brando, and I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it. Is there a is there a, a an ideal optimum ratio? Not that I know of. There may well have been research done. Um, the challenge with all these things is the sample sizes are so small. Any research is going to be horribly skewed anyway. Um, quick semi tangent. I saw some research the other day. We, you and I have argued about population, Andrew. Or not? You just you know, disagree. Yeah. And someone said, oh, immigration is the problem because it's not the biggest contributor to population growth. Like, that isn't, it, it, those, those right. things don't have to be true at the same time. Again, whatever, whatever you view, the idea that, so, so it is adding to population, yeah, but it's not, the biggest, it's not the biggest problem, so we shouldn't talk about it. It's like, that, <laughs> okay. we, we, yeah, it may not be the best solution or even the, 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 you know, a solution might be a terrible idea to cut immigration, but saying it's not worth talking about because it's not the biggest thing is like, it's just, anyway, blew my mind. And yeah. this, these, were, these were academics, I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them, it's, you know, anyway. They're doing a good job of embarrassing themselves. Oh, very great. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, by the way, have you seen that recently? The the usual thing now about um, 90, 90% of Australian companies are owned by overseas. Yeah, have. have you seen that yeah, coming around uh, again? Gosh. Speaking of people, it, 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 pop, it comes up, up. It comes up uh, every now and again, doesn't it? It's not, not true if anyone's wondering. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so I don't know if there's any research done, mate. I... I'm a so I'm a big like Ram. I'm a big fan of capitalism, right? Um, but I'm I've said many many times, I'm not a fan of free markets. I'm a, a fan of well regulated markets. Um, I've heard other slogans: uh, fair markets, not free markets. Choose your choose your pick. Some of those are related with uh, associated with ideologies or parties or people. So I don't want to kind of go too far down that rabbit hole. I don't have a particular favorite person who says that, or I'm not buying into their version of this. Um, it's true that big businesses tend to get big because they tend to take competitors out either by buying them or putting them out of business or making them irrelevant. And so I would say 
the more large businesses you have proportionally, the greater the chance that competition, which is exactly Ram's point, isn't working as well as it otherwise might, both as a cause and effect. Mm. Um, uh, let's pick on Woolies and West Farmers. I've said this before when I started working in grocery business years and years and years ago. Woolies, uh, in the 90, early 80s, Woolies was about 20% market share and so was Coles. That's more than doubled, depending on which category you look at in the meantime. Now, uh, on one level, frankly, uh, I'm, I'm not someone who thinks Woolies and Coles are profiteering, by the way. Um, and I actually, uh, very unpopularly on Twitter, have a view that if we broke them up, we pay more for groceries rather than less. Because if you double up the supply chains, you add inefficiencies at store level, head office level. If we had 20 grocers rather than two, I'm relatively sure. Frankly, supplies would be much better off because they wouldn't have the big guys screwing them down so hard. I actually think as a consumer, I wouldn't think I'd pay more. The margins might be lower. The percentage margins might be lower per, per grocer, but they're probably lower because they've got to double the or you know, duplicate the entire supply chain, truck fleets, uh, source sizes, locations, like, you know, they get further between the stores because they're not close enough. Now, I'm not saying we should not have more than two grocers. I'm just saying, careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, that, that flicks the other way around and we end up getting stuffed by having that. Uh, two airlines, probably not great. So the more, the more that large businesses dominate the landscape, the greater the chance that we're paying too much or that supplies are getting too little or both. So I think... I would say more small businesses are uh, almost certainly better for a health of a capitalist democracy or democratic capitalism, whichever way you want to phrase it, than having larger businesses. So uh, unlike Ram, who's going to feather his own nest by wanting more things for small business owners like him, uh, I am going, I'm going to say idealistically, ideologically, and without self-interest or without, you know, I'm kidding, of course, uh, bias, I think, I think he's right. I think we want more small businesses. Now, there is some... Benefit of scale, um, and by the way, we're talking about Australian businesses. Uh, if there's you know small Australian businesses but big international ones that, that are eating our lunch, then we've got to be careful. So, frankly, on, on a global scale, how bad are Woolies and Coles being massive if the alternative is Amazon or Walmart from overseas? You know, what, what, which which yeah, choose carefully, right? Because we say we want ten small grocers, and so we do. Amazon says, I'll have all of that business. Thank you very much, and you can't break me up. You can stop me operating in Australia. You can't break me up because I'm an American business. Now, what are you going to do? So we're going to be a little bit careful about the the impact of the decisions we might make locally. We are small, we're a small economy. The Yanks, if they broke Amazon up or Walmart, might be doing the rest of the world a favor, but we're not going to do it. Same as Google or Facebook or choose those choose those guys. Um, so be a little bit careful. I now you ask about policy settings. I think Australian competition policy is woefully generous to big business. I probably own shares that have benefited from that. So I'm talking about both sides of my mouth, but I've said many times I'm not I'm not unusual but i am rare uh, rams the same i'm going to put you in the same bucket as me mate mm-hmm. yep. uh, i own fortescue shares and i reckon resources companies should pay more rents i own yeah. telstra shares and i reckon there should be more competition in telcos mm-hmm. i would be hurt by both those things and yet it's the right thing to do policy wise i can absolutely do the same that both those things at the same time uh, not a lot of people do they all talk their own book uh, which is sad for democracy and sad for for well-functioning markets um there are there are there's not enough competition in the market the ACCC and the courts are too lenient on competition uh, they allow too many mergers that shouldn't probably be allowed um, they are not strict enough to make sure that competitive pressures remain at the forefront interestingly enough the government's actually announced a review now government's announced reviews and they often go nowhere but into competition policy in australia i think they're a really good thing i hope it i hope there's some genuine um engagement i hope there's some genuine findings with teeth 
Uh, not because I don't love big businesses. And if you own them, you're probably yelling at the podcast machine now saying, hey, Phillips, back off my, you know, Qantas or Woolies or, or Telstra or whatever it is. That's cool. You can have that view. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in, in the policy outcomes for the country. I think we have a better economy with many more businesses rather than fewer large businesses. And so policy settings aren't right. I don't think tax rates, I wouldn't have given small business a lower tax rate than big business. Um, we get into that super profits tax kind of idea of like, if you make more than a certain amount of money, you should pay more tax. It's just it's just not very useful. Um, we talk a lot about margins and other things. Woolies you know, has more business, but it makes a 6% margin. The ASX is much smaller, it makes a 50% margin. So Woolies would pay the extra tax and ASX wouldn't really. So super profits tax are, are, are frankly, I'm going to say economic illiteracy. It's, it's politicking and positioning by people who don't know better and maybe they shouldn't but they should start if they don't know better um to be really blunt uh we should be able to change the way we run competition policy and tax policy but i wouldn't give small business a, a free kick um not because they don't deserve it but you pay a proportion of your profit so if you make less money you pay less tax you make more money you pay more tax i think that seems perfectly fine to me so mm. uh, i wouldn't change that uh i would i would focus on competition policy and if you want to help small business stopping big business using their market power to, to push the little guys around is far more useful, I think, to them uh, than giving a, a, a bit of extra tax just to buy a few votes. Yeah, it's so it's so hard. Isn't it? Uh, you know, this is why I think you... I'm very... I'm a big fan of sort of... Or an anti-fan um, <laughs> of anything that... Like, I think we try to plan things with really good intentions... But you are trying to plan something that is literally a chaotic system and is unplanable, really. It's very difficult to do. So I, I think there is something to be said for allowing things to evolve organically and just making sure you've got the policy settings in place to make sure that nothing too egregious sort of happens there and sort of keep things within 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 their lane type thing. But but really get the hell out of the way because they're, they're, people will always have an incentive to better their own situation. And, and the best way to do that is to sort of help everyone else freely when, you, when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it is so hard. It is so hard. There's a, if I can end the episode by pointing to a, the great um, economic teacher, uh, which is uh, South Park, um, there's a great episode, uh, season eight, episode nine. I looked it up. Uh, it's called Something Walmart This Way Comes. It's a great episode. And so basically uh, Walmart comes to South Park and they put all the small businesses out here. So the townspeople are, this is outrageous. You know, poor old Jim's Drugs is not doing well and the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So the townspeople burn Walmart down. And then you sort of flash forward and Jim's Drugs is like this huge, big Walmart behemoth. <laughs> Because you know, it fills the void, Someone, right? So it's exactly, sort of yeah, yeah. you got a Walmart got to where it was by being mm -hmm. the best, and and so it's sort of like we'll do and and created a huge amount of value for people and gave people mm -hmm. much cheaper products than that they otherwise would have got. Now, can the pendulum swing too far and the rest of it? I don't know, but my point is, is that this stuff is super, 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 super difficult, and I, I think really the the baseline principle should always be fairness, I suppose, mm -hmm. and all all's yep. All's fair in love and war to a point, but when you get to a point where you have unfair advantage, yeah, that's correct. probably the line at which we want to say, okay, okay, let's let's because because then you sort of get into sort of the robber baron kind of phenomena yeah, of of you know um, uh, you stifle competition, you stifle true value creation, and and that's a that's a bad thing. But gosh, talk about asking a huge question to to end the episode. Mm -hmm. um, it's a big one. 
It's a tough one, mate, because capitalism tends towards monopoly. That I mean, that yeah, it does. The, the, yeah. the dog eat dog. Eventually, all the dogs are eaten except the big dog. That that's yeah. that's literally how it happens, right? And that's not that that's a that's a feature, not a bug. So the we want to incentivize that idea of being better than your competitors by bringing a better price, a better product, better service, whatever it is that improves the market. That's the whole idea of competition, right? It, it's it 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 iterates towards a better outcome. The problem is that at the extreme, when it's let to get there, they just they, they do the, the Walmart yep. story, the Amazon story, the if you've seen Wally the movie, uh, buy and yes. low, um, yes. you know yeah. the, the and it, and they're, they're they're fun fictional examples. But at the South Park example, though, I haven't seen the episode, Ram. You might That's great. You don't know. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it's exactly that, right? Something will fill the void. the The challenge for governments, I, I take your point, mate, about not getting too involved. I mm. I just think generally speaking, you want to see competition work and when it doesn't work uh, you know uh, so, some the hardcore free marketers will say well at some point someone will come and start doing it to which i say well good luck if you're going to try and start a grocery store and you're and you're around the corner from all these and so i'm gonna do it slightly better than woolworths and they're eventually they won't be able to put me out of business i will be able to get big enough and bad enough to compete on my own terms that structurally you just you're not gonna you're never ever gonna have that opportunity right you're never gonna be you can be a little bit niche a little bit different you can you can bring in a few customers that want something slightly maybe more local more niche a little bit cheaper a little bit something but you you know the the odds that that people are able to compete with woolies before woolies put them out of business not even deliberately just because of the use of that market power there's a point at which you say that's not good for the society not the economy the society the different things um and I, I just think generally speaking there is the <laughs> I would, I would, I would not want a world where competition regulators walked away and we said, "Let them fight it out," because I think we know how that would end. It ends with the Rob Barons, as you said, mate. Yeah. Um, it ends with those sort of outcomes. And by the way, as I said right now, I, I, I'm sure I'm paying less for Woolies groceries than I would if there was more grocers. But ask the, ask the milk, the dairy farmer, uh, ask even some of the big packaged goods providers who basically say, "Well, I've got Woolies and Coles and nothing." So if one of them says no, I lose half my market. What do I do? I do what I'm told. I, I try and get as much as I can, but I do what I'm told because I can't afford not to be in those grocers because I need the scale. It's, okay, well, think about market power, right? So I'm winning. Woolies is winning. The poor suppliers getting stuffed. Uh, you know, is, is that is that competition? Does it resolve itself? Do we let them pl- fight it out? I don't. I don't think we can afford to. I think. I think we want a society. We want an economy that has competition evident, rather than uh, seemingly obviously stifled by. A couple of large competitors who managed to kind of sweep all before them. Yeah, that's why I like sort of the concept of a self-correcting kind of mechanism, where it might be mm. something where the larger and more powerful you get, the more onerous the tax burden becomes. It's sort of like there's still a huge incentive to be that person, mm. that business, because you're going to make squillions of dollars, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to it's hard to say, oh well, I'm not going to try if you do that. Like, yes, you will. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Will, oh, that, will, that is the greatest misnomer in the world. I will call that bluff every day of the week. Oh, so once you're the biggest, most powerful company in the country, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll tax you a bit more. So therefore, you're not going to try. Come on, yeah. please. We we all we all know you're going to. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not saying make it crippling for them, but just you've got to remember that these. So what the libertarians miss out on, I think, is is that the it has been the society that has enabled you to do that, the rule of law, yeah. the structures that we have in place, and you've benefited <laughs> yeah. from the roads, yeah. from the hospitals, from all of this stuff. And it's like, and so, and and we we want you to have that incentive for, to create yes, wealth. We want you to to enjoy the spoils of your risk taking and your hard work mm. because we have all benefited from it. But don't pretend that you did this in a vacuum, right? Mm. And so the the reward is great wealth, but also 
that you need to give some back. You know, and and more so than the smaller people, and and then at the other end, I think we are more generous with the support that we give and the tax that we do, and so it 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 doesn't mean that things won't continue to get bigger, but if they do, it's kind of like well, we're all going to win because there's all more money in the tax pile that we can spend on ourselves, whether that be through social security or better services or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. But it still it sort of leaves the core of capitalism. And the great yeah, aspects in, in place, but yeah. and we're saying yeah, it just means if you get super big, you're going to pay a lot more tax, and if if you stay super small, we're going to make sure that we support you to help, to ensure that you've, you know, it's sort of like we're going to put Rocky Balboa in the ring and me, and okay, that's that's an unfair fight, but <laughs> right, if right, if Rocky if Rocky has to sort of like wear lead shoes and wear blindfold. He's probably okay. He's still going to win, maybe, but <laughs> but I've got a chance yeah. now. I've yeah. got a chance, yeah, and, yeah, and, right. and I think for the spectators, yeah. uh, in, in my very horrible analogy here, it's probably a more interesting fight as well, rather than just yeah. me getting yeah. punched in the face and in, in the first second and falling on the mat. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> I I'm not I'm not entirely sure the after tax as you know the, the, using taxes as the thing makes the difference because you've got to pay more of it, but you're still going to smash your competitors unless, unless that's actually yeah, I do, yeah, it's, 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 to limit your competitive abilities. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. It gets hard, but I, but I take your point. I'm also mindful, by the way, that, that argument of, you know, someone says, I, you know, I, if, I, if I have to pay 48% of my income in tax, I'm not going to work any harder. What's the you're going to destroy entrepreneurialism. If I get a million dollars, I'm going to pay 48%. Where's the incentive? The five hundred twenty thousand dollars you get to keep, dude. Yes, let's let's not let's it. not pretend there's yeah, a uh, yeah. a disincentive here. You might hate it. That's different. You might want to pay less. That's different. Yeah, there is no disincentive there. You do you mean Do you mean if I start making ten million dollars a year, <laughs> I have to pay ninety percent tax on every dollar above that? That's outrageous. Okay. I I refuse to try. Like, I, I'm I'm quitting work. I don't want the five million dollars I'd get to keep. I would rather have nothing. Thank you very much. That's more that's more satisfying to me. Like, no, <laughs> okay. Let, let's let's stop lying about these sort of things. Oh, it's amazing uh, how well that works, though. That argument, isn't it? Like, oh. The other one, the other one is, is like we've got a lower corporate tax because yeah. you know uh, to attract businesses. Like so, oh, this seriously. this this huge market that is a well, that I mean, you know, we're not the biggest market in the world, but we're bigger than I think we're the thirteenth largest economy. So business is going to turn their back on this huge opportunity because they might have to pay tax if they're successful. Like come on. Yeah. I don't buy. And it. by the way, when they do, someone here will do the job and then pay the tax. Yeah, there, there is no. We don't. We don't lose. What? What? What do you think we're losing out on in that scenario? Yeah. Hey, by the way, mate. Um, the good news is, if our listeners did what you told them to do, they are about three quarters of the way through their ten thousand steps for today. So you're welcome, <laughs> listeners. You are very, very welcome. Uh, how about we just uh, finish with that, mate? Let's. Well, that was a terrible question. To end, to end on. For, yeah. I oh, was a great question, though. A great question, but yeah, that was a dangerous question. We're, we're probably we're probably not only made people walk very far. We've probably like really annoyed <laughs> half of the audience too. The good news is, if they were paying really good attention and just walking, they're probably an hour and a half in the wrong direction. So they're going to walk an hour and a half back. Ah. There you go. You're even more welcome. This is three hours of walking time. <laughs> Until next week, walk on, walk well, and full on. Thanks for listening. Thank you. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.